Hi, you're listening to Homo Ludens, the podcast on history and board games. We're very late on our schedule for 2023, uh, mostly due to health reasons on my side. But we try to catch up in the next couple of episodes. In this first part of the podcast, my co-host Joe and I will talk about what we've read, watched and played during this month of, I would say, April, March... February, I'm not sure, Joe, but we're going to cover a lot of ground. And in the part two, we'll travel back in time. Uh, actually, not travel back in time. I wanted to travel back in time to catch up on all the games from the Club de Jeu, but we'll skip straight into the April's game for the Club de Jeu, Police Fight for Hegemony by Devir. So this will be the second part. We'll have a few members of the Homoly Dance Discord server coming over and doing a collective review. And then after that, I think we'll skip to the regular schedule if everything goes okay, uh, and we should be back on a monthly schedule. So sorry about all that. Uh, and in parallel, I'll keep delivering episodes of uh, We Intend to Move on Your Works, the series about the American Civil War. By the way, if you want to join our community on Discord, you just have to become a backer on Coffee, and I'll have added the link into the description. So Joe... It's been a while. How have you been doing? Uh, I've been okay. Fairly busy with work and a few personal things as well. So, but it's nice to get back into a regular schedule of this. There is a, a crucial addition to the show that you've forgotten, which yes. is uh, it's now also a culinary review uh, show. Yeah, I forgot about that. It's really important that you remind me and remind our audience that uh, we are looking at culture in the larger sense now. We are also covering food. So that's uh, that's quite nice. Let's start with the stuff that we've watched. I know it's been a long time, so mm -hmm. I guess that you probably picked up um, a couple of specific movies that caught your attention during that period. So what what were the, the highlights in terms of, of movie? So two, two movies I watched in the last couple of months and really enjoyed. Um, one is White Noise, which is the adaptation of the Don DeLillo book, yeah. uh, which I just watched by myself one evening. Um, I didn't really expect too much because... You know, it's a it's an adaptation of a book. It's a it's a new film. Who knows what it's going to be like? But I, I thought it was really really great. Um, really kind of sucked me in. Really vivid. Uh, you know, two hours or less or so. Some some extremely good acting. Um, yeah, great great experience. Um, not like anything else I've watched in a long time. Yeah. Have you did you read the novel before uh, seeing the movie? I haven't done actually, no. Um, okay, because I haven't seen the movie yet and I was a bit worried and I read the novel and I kind of liked it. But And when I rem what I remember about the novel, I guess you would like the story of the movie, so I'm not too surprised. <laughs> it is in academia, right? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, no, he Some is. And, yeah. Well, no, he is, and that, that, that was relevant because I definitely, you know, having lived in that world, yeah. I, there's this... It's it's uh, I mean I, I imagine Donda Lillo has some experience with this with this world as well of you know being in an English literature department or something because there's there's a lot of personality types I'm very familiar with um, a lot of egos um, but played up in a very absurd way so he's he's clearly kind of kind of taking the piss out of it to some extent. I remember that part was really really funny. Um, I did, didn't know much about academia, but I thought in his in his book was was a really funny aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, yeah, it was it was a very funny film at the same time as being very kind of personally touching, which which I thought was um, you know a strong combination, hard hard to pull off sometimes. So mm. that was that was impressive. What was weird was that the same so a major plot point in the film, which I don't think spoils anything, is there's been a major train crash with some some chemicals exposed and there's this big cloud of toxic chemicals. And something almost identical to this was going on in the US at, at the same time that I watched the film, which was a, a bit disconcerting. Yeah, it was but, East Palestine, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, that one, or maybe another one even, there's been several. But yes, that, that was the one I think that was going on. Yeah. yeah. As if they have some sort of infrastructure problem. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Yes. But going back 30 years or whenever Dondalillo wrote the book. So, yeah. yeah. So, as if it was not a new problem. So that's Indeed, the, yeah. 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 Maybe uh, busting unions and not investing in uh, public services is not a great idea after all. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought? So, that's, that's fun. Yeah. So, white noise. And so how was the casting? Because there, there was this guy that I... So the Adam Driver is in this one, right? Adam Driver is, and I was impressed. So, uh, you know, he's in Star Wars, whatever. Um, this is the first thing I think I've seen him in outside of Star Wars. And uh, he was he's very good. Good actor with a lot of range, I'd say. He's a great actor, actually. And yep. yeah, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not surprised that he did good. I'm just happy that he did good here. Uh, but yeah, definitely a, a great actor beyond Star Wars. Uh, mm. But that's, uh, that's another thing. Anything else um, about this movie, or is there another movie that you wanted to talk about? Let, let's move on. We've got a lot to cover, including cooking today. So, I, I mean, this is in some ways similar. I also watched Banshees of Inisherin, um, yeah. yeah, which, uh, I mean, similar insofar as it's a very funny film, at the same time as being very tragic and quite yeah. uh, kind of touching. I, I enjoyed it. I think my, my partner had more mixed feelings about it, but uh, just because it's a bit it's a bit kind of grim in a sense but not not just in a in a grim sense like there's not really any any positive outcome at all in any sense from it um so it can feel a bit kind of i, I don't know like like there's nothing good coming out of it in that sense which i can understand not liking but i, I thought it was good and it was quite touching uh so I, I you know i've been in this situation i have to say as as the asshole in this case where there's somebody you've been hanging out with you know this was back at school and they they really want to hang out with you more and more but they're actually just really tedious and you have to just have to go away eventually mm. so i you know it was it was interesting seeing that presented as a as a situation i think it's it's not as you say it's not a great movie for sunday night because it's not gonna cheer you up a lot uh so that's in that sense i can understand but i think it's a great movie and i like it's a very unusual story but also some a story as you said that everyone can relate to mm-hmm. and which i think was whether you are on one side or the other yeah, exactly. um, so i think that's uh, that's that's quite interesting and i what i really liked about it was first of all that i like when movies do that and they take a, a geographical place as a character uh, mm-hmm. in the movie like the batman movies do, do that a lot obviously that's the, an obvious one but in this case in a more rural area it's interesting to see it happen like the the island that they are in is a character which i think is is quite interesting and i also felt like it like the story felt like a folk tale i don't know, mm-hmm. you, I know what you mean. The, yeah there were some aspects of it that i thought were were really interesting and you feel like there is symbols hidden everywhere mm-hmm. which you might expect they like like when there are like this feeling that hidden symbols and there is a a, a hidden knowledge to be uh, to be discovered yeah. in uh, in uh, in the images which i which i really really enjoyed and but yeah pretty grim pretty grim and once again the actors in this one pretty insane cast like they are yeah, amazing good. yeah, yeah and yeah. amazing actors yeah. i was surprised by uh colin farrell that's the colin farrell is is interesting because he does yeah. all these more you know mainstream big hollywood films um but you know he's a he's a real actor with a real interest in doing these 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 different projects uh, which he's done you know loads of now for me i was really surprised by his by, by him playing in this movie because he there is no moment where you're not convinced that he is who he is in the movie, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you cannot think, you cannot not think about all the characters that you know him from. And you're like, this is so far away. And it creates a sense of 
it really it, it felt really uncanny and i think it helped yeah. for the movie that it was him playing that role and playing it so well i think he, i think it helps as well that him and brendan gleason do have this quite deep deep friendship in in real life as well so there's, there's yeah. a lot that they're playing off there i imagine it was yeah i i, I quite enjoyed that uh, i thought it was pretty cool too. what else did you watch well, let, let's go to you. What, what films have you watched? We, we so there is, I watched a few, but I, I highlighted two of them that I wanted to talk about because they really struck me as as pretty unique and really like movie that I think uh, would stay with me for a while. The first one is The First Cow by Kitty Richard. I don't know if you've seen this one. No, I haven't done The First Cow. Yeah, The First Cow. So it's um, the 19th century Pacific Northwest. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's, you could say, the end of the far west discovery so that's the end of the colonization of north america they 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 go up to the pacific and and the first cow is the story of um uh, two friends a skilled cook named cookie and a chinese uh, immigrant uh, named king lu Uh, and they form this uh, pretty unique bond while they try to make a life for themselves in this uh in the newly colonized uh, oregon which is the Mm -hmm. the territory that they are in Everything changes in the movie, and that's almost the starting point of the story when the first cow gets introduced mm-hmm. into that region. So there is a wealthy Englishman that buys a cow and brings it to Oregon, and that's the first cow that appears in, in that region of the world. And King Lou is like the, the smart entrepreneur type, and he comes up with this very risky plan, but that pays off in the beginning, which is to steal the cow's milk at night. And uh, and make cakes that they sell on the market to the local community the, the next morning. One of their clients, being the rich Englishman that bought the cow, that is surprised that his cow is not producing that much milk <laughs> during the day. And it feels like feels like there's a bit of a kind of kind of Robin Hood type uh, undercurrent here, which which of course you would like. Definitely, and and this is what I. I, I it, it, so they are not doing this in a very. Um, there is no political statement from mm-hmm. them. They're just trying to make a living. Uh, it's a very subtle movie, very calm, quite beautiful. And I, what I liked formally about it is that it approaches Far West movies, uh, so Western movies, uh, in a very different sense. Mm-hmm. Even the f- the frame that they're using, so the the image is a, I think it's a four by three or something a bit narrower. And it makes the whole movie more intimate, whereas normally Westerns are big panoramic lenses that they use and where the land is more important than the man and everything. Mm-hmm. And here it's really about the damn forest, the relationship between between those two men, and it's all narrowed in the picture. And it's it's really a beautiful romance. And there is also a bit that that aspect of almost social banditry that I like. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a very beautiful, uh touching movie, very different from everything that I've seen before. And there is a the way it portrays friendship between men is also something that you don't see that much, uh, mm-hmm. and I think it's a, it's a theme that I that I like a lot, and I think would deserve to be explored in more subtle ways than just stupid bromance comedies that we usually see. This is way more. I don't know. Thinking about also Benchies of Inisherin is also another movie that talks about those things in a yeah. in yeah. a not so uh, positive aspect. Uh, the first guy would be the uh, the answer to that, like a deep interesting friendship between between two men that, that sounds a bit like a proposal for a double bill like my proposal for a double bill of the menu followed by pig yes exactly yeah and that's the thing so i, I think often our picks uh answer to each other so yep. that's 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 quite interesting so yeah i would definitely recommend uh watching the first cow i think you 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 would enjoy it it's mm-hmm. it's quite slow you have to really get into it but once you are in it it's 
Yeah, you're really with those characters. Okay, I'm, so. a, I'm a connoisseur of Korean dramas, so I can deal with so that. Yeah, that should be fine. Good. And actually, another movie, my second movie that I wanted to highlight, and I think this one might be more uh, more obvious for, for you, is a movie called Aloners. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a Korean movie that tells the, the story of a young woman who works at a call center, and she she lives a very solitary life. Everything is repetitive in her life. Uh, she lives alone. She eats alone. She's always looking at K-drama and other stuff mm-hmm. on her phone. And she's always, if she's not working, she's looking at her phone. And that's pretty much it. It's it's, And you get into the routine of her life like this. And, and the film Are you trying really... to say that's what, that's what my life is like? No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. But, she, she, well, but it's a Korean movie. She watches a lot of K-drama. So you can, in some aspects, some aspects, yeah. a lot of them, maybe relate with the, with the, with the character. So, so that actually makes me think of one of the K-dramas I wanted, well, sorry, the, the K-drama I wanted to mention today, because I am limited to one K-drama yeah. a day. If, if we're okay to move on to TV shows, um, I don't know if there's more films you want to discuss. No, no, no. I, I think it was just this one that was the only yeah. one that I wanted to, to, to mention. And just that there is one thing about this movie that I would say is really interesting is the actress in that movie, she has this very peculiar face. Mm-hmm. And the the way I would say it is that I think we we're talking about it with, with Julia. There was something special and we called it visual ASMR. Just <laughs> looking at her is kind of calming. I don't know why, but she still brings you on a on a very complex and deep emotional journey, but he has this very peculiar face. So just for that, I would I would look at it. But it's I'm, a quite I'm interesting movie. To, yeah, I'm trying to see if I if I recognize it now because I know a lot of these Korean actors now. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, and you have okay. to see her in motion. But yeah. So yeah, what's okay. the key drama that you wanted so, to talk yeah, about? So yeah, we started watching My Liberation Notes, and this I had no, I didn't expect to enjoy it, but we have this rule that we watch one episode of any Korean drama, just give it a go, because a lot of them are surprisingly good. Uh, this one's really excellent, in- extremely slow, which is what made me think of it, and extremely about kind of alienation from, from modern life and this kind of thing. So it's about these three siblings who live in a, a kind of rural suburb of um, Seoul, and have to commute in every day to go to work and they have this this mm. kind of very repetitive tedious <laughs> life and back home they need to help on the farm and and they have this tension with their parents and so on and with each other and with their friends back home and they're just trying to make it in the city and and they feel really lost and they're all failing in their relationships and so on uh, mm. which just sounds kind of kind of horrible but but it's 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 just a very very slow paced thing you know nothing exciting happening at all there's no you know there's no gangsters or anything and then it's just about their their lives really and and it's 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 you know very compelling just to watch the interactions of these people you, you would you would you recommend that for me or or uh, yeah i mean i think if you like this this film uh, this this sounds like the kind of thing that you might also enjoy uh, so yeah i would I would I would try it definitely, and it's got some some really nice acting in. And even though so so sometimes with these Korean dramas, um, I find the episode length drags a bit because yeah. uh, you know they're like an, you know one hour plus for each episode. But these ones these ones didn't feel like that at all, even though there's really nothing happening. It's just really nicely filmed, and there's a lot of nice nice acting. So it's just kind of pleasant to watch in a way. And also on Netflix or uh, that's on Netflix, yeah. Okay, yeah. good. It's insane the amount of K drama they have on there. Yep. Yeah, there is a lot. I need to yeah. get into it. And I don't think I watched TV shows. Oh, yeah, actually, I watched Beef. I don't know if you watched it. Beef, I have it. I actually put it. So this is quite, quite funny. I put it on my, like, to watch list on Netflix. And then my partner took it off because they thought it was on there by accident. So I haven't watched it yet because it's been taken off my my list on on Netflix. But I I may watch it at some point. What what did you think there? I've seen kind of mixed reviews of it. So I wasn't sure. I still have to watch the final episode. 
and maybe we can talk about it next month when you when you have watched it so we can mm-hmm. we can we can exchange uh, opinions on it okay i'll watch it next time i have i have mixed feelings about it but i would say it's definitely worth the watch Okay. The other thing I've been watching and kind of binging by myself and only just got into is Yellow Jackets, which I only discovered recently, but is absolutely the middle of the kind of niche that I enjoy to watch by myself because it's got a mixture of high school drama and also like survival horror. And these two things I really enjoy. You know, I watch all of The Walking Dead. Um, I also just love the kind of soap operatic high school drama stuff. Mm. So it's, it's about this high school women's soccer team um, in the US who crash land on the way to this big tournament in rural Canada and have to try and survive, basically. But it's also about the survivors in the modern day reflecting back on that and dealing with trauma from it and so on. But it's it's good. Yeah, you, you enjoy high school dramas too, don't you? Yeah, I do. I, I like them a lot. I, I like high school dramas, uh, especially if they are kind of intended at teenage girls for yeah, some Yeah, I, I think both of us have this... Have this, uh, this niche that we enjoy um, yeah. th- this one you might find a little bit too stressful i suspect but it, it, it's good so far i enjoy it a lot yeah and look have a look into it but when you were talking about it i was thinking that there is actually a manga a manga series that you should probably read and i know they've done a an english translation of it and i think mm-hmm. a quite a few nice edition of it because you you don't have as much as we have in french but this one has been translated uh, called the drifting classroom mm-hmm. by kazuo mezu i think it's one of one of my favorite horror manga, and I'm not a big on horror manga. Like I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a bit of a chi- like well, I don't know how to say in French we say wet chicken. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I don't like horror. I'm, I'm, I'm easily scared. But I think this one is is really good, and it has this um, high school drama aspect uh, to it. Well, they're not really in high school. They are, they are, they are younger than that. The characters, mm-hmm. but you have this vibe. And in, and Kazuo Mezu's work, especially in the seventies, were more intended at uh, teenage girls and stuff like this. So you have definitely a bit that that vibe. But it's uh, I think it's something that you might like. Mm-hmm. So is that everything that you watched, or are there um, TV shows that you're thinking about? Those are the notable ones I was going to mention. The other thing we have been watching actually is the latest season of Barry, which I would hi- highly recommend again. Um, what, so, what is that? So Barry is it's this. So it fits into this niche of um, dark comedies, I guess, which have been the yeah. theme uh, today. Um, so it's about this uh, ex-military hitman who uh, starts going to a drama class because he wants to try and find some more meaning in his life. And he's trying mm. to reinvent himself as an actor, uh, basically. That's for, for just... Um, but it's it's very funny. Season three, I was less convinced by, but the, this final season has really got, got going very well. And it's um, much more intense. Uh, and it becomes quite an intense show about trauma and bad relationships and stuff like this. So it's it, it's good. Okay. I have a look. I've never heard about it. So, and I like the I like the the idea, like the mm-hmm. pitch behind the series. So, I'll go and have a look. Good. Then, if that's it for the thing that we watched, we have to talk about the stuff that we've read. So, what are your literary, well, maybe not only literary, maybe nonfiction too uh, highlights for for you? So, I'll mention just one novel I've been reading, which I just picked up. Where did I? No, I, I bought it online. I, I read about it somewhere, but it's called, it's an Irish book called The Early King and the Kid in Yellow, um, which of course has some kind of Lovecraftian overtones in the in the title there. But it's. Yeah, set... The King in Yellow is not Lovecraft, it's the guy before. How is he called again? Yeah, it is. I can't remember his name now either. But it's this is the, the Early King and the Kid in Yellow. The Kid in Yellow is just wearing a yellow raincoat. But it's set in a kind of. Robert um... Chambers. Yeah, that's the yeah Robert thing. Chambers. Um, and there's not really any Lovecraft, any strong Lovecraft overtones, but it's definitely trying to evoke that with that title or, or it's a very odd coincidence so it's set in a kind of kind of 
semi-post-apocalyptic future island where it uh, never stops raining. And I mentioned this to a couple of Irish friends, and they just said, oh, that's just normal island. I said, okay, fine. So it's set there, and you know, it's it never stops raining, and there's all this kind of breakdown, I guess, but mostly kind of climate apocalypse in, in some way but you know they're still they're still in the city and so on and there are these gangs and it's about this uh this kid the kid in yellow who's got in trouble with the early king who's this kind of gang boss and it's just kind of about that really um it's it's very hard to describe beyond that what it's about because it's a very odd book but i i enjoyed that a lot and it's written in a very interesting way trying to evoke this kind of near future setting um so yeah i'd Highly recommend that one. Fairly short, easy read. Okay, that's what I was about to ask. Is it an easy read, especially in terms of language? Because I would say that even though I work, speak, talk in English on a daily basis and read in English, sometimes when I'm looking at literary yeah. works, depending on the language, it can be a bit uh, challenging to So this read. one does, it is, it's more like, I guess, more like experimental in terms of some of the way it's written. So some chapters are written in quite different styles and some of it's written almost in a kind of like a dialect or like a particular kind of accent or something. So some of that might be harder to read, but I think once you get into it, it flows quite easily. Cool. I have a, I have a look because I like the the topic that you're like the themes and everything. Mm. So that sounds pretty exciting. It also, so it also actually just, just reminds me of something you mentioned earlier, which is these, these films or books uh, being about a place often. And my, my dad who reads a lot of like noir detective novels Mm. has a, has a theory that all, all noir is is about is, is you know it's a vehicle for describing a city or a place or something more than the characters so you have this detective or whatever almost as a vehicle for exploring a place and this book's a bit like that some of it is written from a perspective of a of a detective and i think it's almost you know there's this story but that's almost there just as a vehicle for describing this alternative future dublin i think that's a way. pretty compelling theory I, I think it doesn't make a lot of sense and i see i see that so that's a that's a really good point i like this it's interesting okay so that was that's the only fiction that you're or uh, uh, I've been point. so I've been reading the final book in the Terra Ignota series, which I think I mentioned. Yeah, you mentioned a few months ago. Yeah, which I, I still have very mixed feelings about, but it's been very compelling. Such that I'm reading the, the huge final volume. It's got this classic sci-fi fantasy thing where the first three volumes are normal length, and yeah. then on the final one, the author just just loses it and writes something you know like three times as long as any of the previous ones. But I, I'm going to finish reading that and. It's 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 worth trying, but I wouldn't necessarily try to persuade anyone to read it. And on the nonfiction side, uh, mostly I've been reading stuff about Cuba, perhaps unsurprisingly. Um, yes. So maybe you should for for our listeners that are not uh, very aware of what's happening on GMT PP five hundred, maybe you can explain why you read so much about Cuba. Well, I, I feel like my persona on this on this show is distinct from my other two personas as a designer or a developer. But there is there's a new game on GMT's P five hundred by the designer JG Hurst called Resisting Revolution, which is a sequel to the coin game Cuba Libre. Uh, so it's about the three years after after the revolution and the consolidation of Castro's power against various internal factions, basically. But but it's also going to include some new content for the base game, which is partly what I've been reading about as well. Yeah. So I, I've been reading a few books. One, one is actually already in the, um, I think it's in the, the recommended readings for Cuba Libre, but I, w- I would definitely recommend it, which is Inside the Cuban Revolution by Julia Zweig which is more about the um, the urban wing of the 26th of July movement um, mm. and about the, the broader kind of support networks, I suppose, which enabled the rural revolution. So that's, that's a very interesting read. Um, I've also been reading a few books by Lillian Guerra, who's a, a scholar of Cuba and has written several books since Cuba Libre came out, so provides some additional context. And she's had a lot of access to um, various government archives and government media archives and also spent time living in Cuba talking to 
various various relatives and so on who've been there since the revolution. So she's got a couple of very interesting books about the you know the decades after the revolution, so the sixties and the seventies. So one one I just finished reading is called Visions of Power and is about mm. I guess the consolidation of, of of government power, but also within the population of the people of Cuba and. I suppose one one thesis of that is that the Cuban government was or has been so successful, not not quite by distributing power, but by presenting the role of a government as being almost like a direct kind of vehicle for for the people, and and really like making a lot of people believe that, such that in a positive sense, people kind of buy into the the project of the Cuban Revolution and and were really involved in it, which yeah. I think was certainly true for much of the 60s. Interesting. And, you know, maybe afterwards. But then in a more negative sense, you get people so involved in it that it's very hard to resist it. And not just hard in a kind of practical sense, but probably hard even mentally or to decide that there's a problem with it. Because if you've been involved in it, you know, if you're running a local committee or something like this, you're you're part of the thing which you would be turning against, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah. That's an interesting, yeah, I mean, one, yeah, super interesting. Yeah, one way to put yeah. that, I suppose, is is if you make people complicit in it, then then it's harder for them to decide to try and stop it. Something like this. Okay. Any anything else that you've been reading? I can't remember really. I read a lot of nonfiction just for different kinds of projects, but I've been focusing mainly on the Cuba, the Cuba ones. So those are the, the yeah. two. And and she's got a book also on the on the revolution, which I'll be reading next just to see what she has to say about it. Do you think that the reading that you're doing now might still influence some aspects of the design, or it's mostly to uh, prepare to play uh, there, so I'm still working on some of the details of the event cards so um, I'll be I'll be adding some things in from these which are either may, maybe missed out from the original design because there wasn't room for them or come from 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 research after um, after the game came out and then also for the sequel game as well uh, on my side I mostly read fiction it's the return of Terry Pratchett I read the last mm -hmm. hero that follows the story of Cohen the barbarian I, I don't I have yet you you read, read the, this one. um illustrated version as well right yeah yeah the illustrated version yeah which is the the same uh, it's just that it becomes in a in a bigger book and you have those really cool illustration in it which is which is very nice but you you then you read it yeah I have a copy of this at home which I read a long time ago yeah it's I don't think I wouldn't say that it's the best Terry Pratchett this world uh, novel that I read, but I thought it was pretty fun. Like I, I just had a ton of fun reading it. Mm -hmm. I think it was at the time where I didn't really had the the ability to concentrate on things that were too too complex, and it was a good thing for me to just go to the library for an hour, read a bit, and then go back home. And this was like the perfect type of book for that. It had some aspects of it that I liked, like it was referencing uh, like the Promethean myths. Mm -hmm. There were some characters that I was happy to uh, see again, even if it was uh, just briefly. And it was it was it was quite cool. Not the best uh, novel about it, but it it talks about uh, interesting things, the nature of heroism, what does it mean to age, um, uh, the relationship between power structures and science, like in a, in a very funny way, as he usually does, but it's never, there is always something interesting in his books. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was quite a, a nice read. More interestingly, I started reading, and I'm actually almost done, I'm in the last chapter right now, uh, Monkey, which is um, Arthur Wiley's abridged version of the Chinese classic Journey to the West mm -hmm. that he released in 42. I found a copy by accident in a bookshop. Uh, so it's an old penguin book from the 50s. <laughs> the book is almost like the the, the pages or, or dropping of the book, but it was just a couple of pounds. And I, I wanted to read it because I was talking last time about uh, Jeffrey Lowe's Chinese Odyssey movies yep. that I that yep. I watched and I really enjoyed. And when I found this book by accident, I was like, oh, I could 
I could read the original material and 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 see how it is. And surprisingly, it is extremely funny. And I realized how much Jeffrey Lowe's movies were actually pretty respectful from the from the original material in a lot of ways, because the 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 humor in the in the in the book in the Fox Tales and everything is actually pretty slapstick, uh, very stupid, very fun. And of course, there is a lot more depth about the story. There is a whole poetic aspect uh, to it, but it is. It is extremely entertaining, very easy to read, and I think uh, Wadey's approach to the to the abridged version is quite interesting, because normally it's a hundred chapters mm-hmm. in the original book, uh, Chinese book, and what he decided to do is not to um, abridge those chapters. Rather, what he did is like he picked thirty of the hundred chapters and translated them unabridged, mm. but chose thirty uh, chapters to make a coherent story out of the hundred. Which is which is interesting. Apparently, I've read a bit about this approach, and it works really well to give you a, a sense of what it is, and also to to give you a sense of how the stories are structures and everything, and that's and that's good. But in in this way, on picking those thirty chapters, he focused really more on the comical aspect uh-huh. of the journey to the West, and and removed a lot of the poetic aspect or more philosophical aspect. But there was a full translation that was recently released by. Um, I think the leading expert of of uh, the journey to the West in the in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would think I would have a look at that. I would like to 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 read the the, the full thing. But it was yeah, uh, extremely fun experience. I recommend people to read it. It's really cool, and uh, yeah, I've I've had a lot of fun reading that. Is so is Jeffrey Lau's films based on this abridged translation? No, 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 no. Okay. So Jeffrey Lowe's film are, are based on the Journey to the West. Right, okay, um, okay. I think he read the, the Chinese version. Yep. It's just that in, in that original version, there is actually a lot of comedy, which I didn't really yep. expect. And, but, and the story that he's portraying in Jeffrey, Jeffrey Lowe's film is, it's almost like fan fiction in the sense yeah, that okay. he's adding stories to the main story. So when you know the full story, you know when Jeffrey Lowe's story is happening, but it's like a bit of a, a side thing that he created, like a, a side quest that appeared and then it goes back. So the beginning of Jeffrey Lowe's movie is something that happens in the in the book. Yeah. And the end is also something that happens yeah. in the book, but everything in the middle is something that he invents, yeah. which is which is quite interesting. But he re- he retains that that very um a comical aspect of it. Yeah. And it's it doesn't come from nowhere. It is actually in the original material, which was yeah which was an interesting uh, surprise. Uh, so, so I'm not particularly surprised by that, just for, for two reasons. One one is, I know, in quite uh, ancient terms, there's, there's a lot of slapstick humor in a lot of East Asian culture, but but also in folk culture internationally, I think it's not it's not so unusual to have this very uh, kind of crude slapstick humor. Lots of lots of European folklore is quite similar in some ways. Yeah, the stories of Robin Hood, yeah. uh, the medieval ones, or there is a lot of slapstick humor in it. So yeah, it's not... Not too surp- I don't know why I was surprised, but I think it was maybe the fact that it was so funny. Like I yeah, literally yeah, okay. had like a good fun reading it. And in a lot of ways, the jokes resonate better than when I read like, for example, old school uh, Robin Hood stories, which I don't know why. I don't know. Do, do you think that's maybe because of a tra- it's a more modern translation? Yes, I think that's why. That's what I was about yeah. to say. Is I think it's maybe maybe because when I read those, like it's still in the style that it was written in when and the the Robin Hood one. Whereas this one, there is a modernized aspect to it because it was translated in the forties. Yeah. So so it doesn't retain that old school aspect. So that might be the that might be. That just might be it. Mm-hmm. And then on nonfiction, there is two things that I've been reading a lot. Uh, one of them is uh, Story Worlds of Robin Hood uh, by Leslie Coote. Mm-hmm. 
I won't talk too much about it, but this is mostly to finalize writing the playbook for Adjust of Robin Hood. And there is a whole section, a whole chapter in that book that I really like, uh, where the author explains that Robin Hood is, in some aspects, uh, especially in the medieval stories, a vehicle for uh, the Virgin Mary, oh. uh, which I think is is really interesting. It's very well documented, and it's really a, an interesting uh, perspective on, on on Robin Hood. So there might be some uh, some Christian uh, yeah. undertones to my playbook uh, in some aspects. So we'll see about that, and maybe explaining why I like uh, Robin Hood so much. And then I started rereading uh, Omolidens uh, by uh, Joanne Duzinga. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and for a really good reason is that uh, Liz from Beyond Solitaire wanted to have uh, record an episode where uh, we talk about the book. And uh, she asked if I wanted to be part of that episode. And of course, I said yes. I thought it was a, a funny thing to do. But I haven't read it in a very long time. So it's, um, it was a good opportunity for me to get back into it. Actually, it's interesting to reread um, now. Because I think the first time I read it, I haven't made a game before. Mm-hmm. And I think I have a v- kind of a different perspective now that I've... I think in a lot of ways, play has become a bigger part in my life now than the first time I read it. Mm-hmm. And in, in different aspects. And rereading it is, is actually quite interesting. So so yeah, but I'll probably talk a bit more about it. Either in a future episode or maybe you'll just watch the episode that we record with, uh, with Liz. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it uh, for me. There are other stuff, but those are where the highlights, definitely. Cool. Should, should we take a quick culinary diversion then before we move on to games? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. What have you cooked? Uh, what have I cooked? I, I should have really thought about this. So I've been continuing to cook quite a lot of Chinese and Korean books, uh, food yeah. books. I have a, a couple of um, vegan Chinese and Korean cookbooks, which I've been kind of working through. And if I have some spare bits and bobs, I have a look in those and see to see what I could try to make. I made a kind of sweet and sour sauce yesterday, but I added a bit of spice to it. Um, so, so it's been interesting taking some of these recipes and like learning learning how to do the recipes, but then changing them a bit, which I think is the way to yeah. engage with these cookery cookbooks. So I can yeah. learn some techniques and so on. But yeah, so I you know I made it a little bit spicier, which is good for our, our palates. Um, I've been continuing to use a lot of Korean gochujang to cook different things. Um, a uh, kimchi shop just opened down the road from us, which is which is really oh, cool. Awesome. So I bought some yeah. kimchi there, and you know I've been making some kimchi pancakes, and also this kind of kimchi noodle soup, which is very easy to make if you have a, a pot of kimchi. So you almost just fry mm. some of the kimchi with some vegetables, and then simmer it in a broth, and then add, add the noodles to it. That's a that's a really quick easy one to make. I, I learned that for practice of squeezing tofu to remove the water in the west, it's oh, completely yeah. stupid, and you shouldn't do it. <laughs> and what you should oh why not because it um. It kind of wrecks the texture of the tofu and doesn't work very well. And what you should actually do, which seems very counterintuitive, what we do in China is you actually soak the tofu in salt water, hot salt water, for yeah. um, you know ten minutes or something. And this actually draws out a lot of the liquid, and then the tofu is slightly drier and will absorb sauce better and so on. But squeezing it just isn't the thing they do at all in China. Okay, that's yeah. I would if you have something about this about the 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 method for it, I would be interested. Yeah. Because I know that for some dish where we need to remove the, to, to dry out a bit the tofu before cooking it, usually what we do is we put it between two paper towels yep. and then something that presses on top, but just to slightly press it to remove, like not aggressively. So you keep the structure of it, but it, it soaks out the water, mm-hmm. uh, but it takes like half an hour or something like this. And you need a lot of weight to be pushed on top yep. of it. Yeah, so that's what I used to do, but this, this cookbook suggested instead... You, I mean, all you need to do is, you know, boil some water in a kettle and add quite a lot of salt to it. So you want almost something like seawater. And then you just put the block of tofu in it 
and leave it there for you know, 10 or 20 minutes. That's inter super interesting. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And uh, 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 yeah, send me some some stuff and uh, and we'll try that. That would be great. Good tips. It's a great addition to this podcast that we're doing this. I'm learning stuff. I'm mm. writing stuff down right. right now. Good. And and you've been baking, Fred. You need to tell everyone about that. Yeah, yeah. I've been baking. I think I'm only going to talk about this. So I've been um, exploring uh, sourdough baking for for a, a few months now. I, I had to do uh, a, a sourdough starter a couple of times. The first time I had a bit of an accident with it. <laughs> By accident, my sourdough starter, I stored it into a, a pot that uh, used to contain uh, shrimps uh, and I didn't wash it. I thought it was clean and it was just there. And I thought that Julia had put it there for me to use. Yeah. And, I put, and I put it there and let it rest. And then uh, Julia asked, what happened with that pot here? And it was... It was just a few hours later and yeah, the sourdough started to have a weird smell and I was like, oh my God, like pro <laughs> shrimp is probably not a good no. thing to ferment. So I'm not sure that's a good idea. So I had to do another one. But anyway, on the good side, yeah, I started making bread. I was really scared about making bread, really. I had my sourdough and I did uh, sourdough pancakes, flatbreads and stuff like this for, for quite a while before making bread because I think I was afraid of making bread. But I started making bread on a pretty regular basis, I would say every week. And uh, yeah, it's actually extremely fun to do. Not that complicated. I had a bit of experimenting. So the, the first couple of breads were not as I wanted them to be. But now I, I come to a stage where I can make a good pound campagne uh, on a regular basis. Uh, so that's uh, that's pretty nice. I also, yeah, I'm having a lot of fun with baking, I must say. It's mm -hmm. a very relaxing thing to do. And it's about managing your time, interacting with the dough. There is a lot of... Uh, very soothing experience. I think it's, it's particularly nice doing the sourdough baking because you you need to take a long time doing it and yeah. and you you know you come back to it every few hours to maybe stretch it a bit or something and then you leave it overnight and it's it's a nice a nice process to have going on to kind of take your mind off other things yes exactly it's something that's very grounding like it's always there mm -hmm. in a positive way and it follows you for 24 or 36 hours yeah. And when you have the finished product at the end, there is you really have a feeling of achievement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. When you get the bread out of the oven and you're like, it had a, this beautiful oven rise and the ears are all crispy and everything. And you look at it, you're like, ah, I did that. That's, that's actually quite nice. And you did it with nothing else than flour, water, salt, and thyme, which is... <laughs> And, and very satisfying. And the yeast off your hands, like you told me. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And which is which is beautiful. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. There is something uh, deeply magical about it, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I, it's it's very satisfying. Mm -hmm. So I'll keep doing that. And I started, uh, as you know, uh, combining my recipes when I once I figure it out. So I, I, I make dumb-proof recipes because I'm not really... Uh, I'm afraid of baking, in yeah. a way. Yeah. Uh, excited by it, but afraid by it. So I... I test, I test, and then I come to a recipe where I'm comfortable with, and then I, I wrote a small recipe with an ideal timeline because the, the time aspect is actually quite important for sourdough baking, and then the ingredients, and then what's the process for it. So, so that's pretty fun. Uh, I'm going to start experimenting with crumpets, but I will tell you about that in the next episode. Mm -hmm. Good. Should we talk about games now? Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. That's yeah. what we're here for, I suppose. So what what have you been playing then, Fred, over the last three months? I have, yeah. So the the thing is that I played a lot of police, which is the thing that we're going to talk about in the second part of uh, of uh, this podcast. So I won't talk a bit too much about it. I would just say that we need to play together because I think you might like it. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting and very different game from everything that I've played before. Since I played this, I think it became one of my 
top 10 games of all time. So I, I think it's uh, I think you should try. It's it's really cool. And then the other game that I played quite a lot actually uh, over the last few months is Maria. Mm-hmm. I've been lucky enough to to be able to play it quite regularly at the at the Cardboard Emperor's Club. There is quite a few people who like the game over there, so it's easy to find uh, two players to um, to set a game. And I was happy to be able to um, to play it pretty regularly. The more I play it, the more I love it. Buying the deluxe components, which is deluxe, is a big word for it, but it's small plastic boxes to to hide your uh, army strength mm-hmm. with uh, wooden cubes in it. Actually, makes the whole experience way um, way nicer. Like it's a small investment. I think it's 15 euros or something like this, and it does bring quite a lot of comfort when you play. And yeah, the more I play, the more I love it. I think it's one of my favorite game of all time. I, I would really like to play it with you because I read the rules a few years back and didn't think it looked very interesting at all. But everyone raves about it, so we should. It's actually really good. Okay. It's actually really good. It's a uh, it's a it's a very fun game, and. In a lot of ways, have you played Westphalia? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. So, in in some aspects, it does remind me of this because the the fighting is actually pretty simple. So, what happens on the board is not really complex, mm-hmm. and you have those big armies. Like you don't have a lot. Like you just move a few generals right, yeah. here and there, yeah. and it's really about the thing specific thing that they can do that is important. And then, this pretty simple game in itself creates a very solid foundation for a lot of very interesting diplomatic discussion mm-hmm. between the okay. players, which I think is is really cool. I would say a good game of Maria relies as almost as much on the players that are around the table than the game itself. Mm-hmm. And I would say that the first time I played Maria, I was I bounced I bounced from it because the people I was playing with I really didn't like the experience, but it was the wrong players. Uh, the mm-hmm. game was, the game requires the right players. Uh, but when you have this, it's it's pretty awesome. Okay. And then uh, maybe one thing that I wanted to talk about. It's maybe a bit unusual, but I played for the first time Lost Cities uh, by Rainer Kinesia. Oh yeah. Uh, which is a very classic two-player uh, board game uh, released by Cosmos, like a very classic German game. But it's one of those classics that I had never played. And we're in this holiday house in Brighton and they had this uh, box of uh, Lost Cities and I played this with my niece for mm. all our stay. Like, and she kept asking for another game, for another game until she beat me. And she did uh, beat me pretty brutally in the end. So it was, it was quite awful. I could see after each game that she was getting closer and I was like, and I, I was not getting better at the game or not as fast as she was. And I was like, my God, I'm old. Like I yeah. could see her like ramping up and I was like, oh my God, I'm happy that the Zoli is over because now I'm not going to win ever again. But it was extremely fun. I love this game. It was really great. Uh, am I trying to, to find a copy for myself? And Rainer Kinesia confirmed that he was the amazing designer that he was. Um, and it motivated me for finally getting to um, Tigris and Euphrates, mm-hmm. which I started, uh, which I read the rule book of and I would start playing on BGA soon. Uh, so that's, uh, yeah, pretty cool. And you, what have you been playing? I've been playing lots of Frosthaven, which we got a couple of weeks ago. Uh, oh. And I, I love, so I played a lot of Gloomhaven a few years ago, and we played the mini Gloomhaven uh, when we were away in Germany. Jaws of the Lion, yeah. Yeah, we just got into Frosthaven, and it, it's just me and my partner playing it, so we can, you know, set up a weekend and play a few games without having to try and organize with people, which makes it very smooth and easy to do. Yeah. Um, and it makes the games quicker as well, because I think each game should be relatively quick. Um, but if you're playing with two other people and they spend ages thinking, it's 
drags a bit sometimes but it's, it's great i think it's a really great little kind of tactical combat system and there's a fun fun little kind of ongoing story around it so it's it's good can't, can't complain love it a lot how, how big is the box it's huge it's the biggest box i've ever seen it's even bigger than the gloomhaven box probably bigger than the pacific war box to give some context for our gmt uh, listeners. Oh yeah, the pacific war box is already a lot smaller than the original gloomhaven yeah. box yeah. no I it's think you it, can yeah. you can fit four pacific war uh-huh. box in a in the gloomhaven box yeah. Yeah, so when people complain about large large war games, really, I, I actually think it's, you know having seen a few games from other companies now, the GMT boxes are extremely well packed and compact uh, for the amount of content in them compared to some of these yeah. big box games. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's a huge box, but I'm enjoying it a lot. And they actually have this; they're working on this um, Gloomhaven RPG system, which I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by because I, I really like the tactical combat in Gloomhaven and you know it could be a, a fun way to do a kind of a light combat focused rpg if they have this this broader system coming up it's curious because the thing is that when i think about gloomhaven i'm not that excited about the setting no, i think no, it's really the really. system yeah so i'm like making an rpg of it it's like Meh. yeah I, so i feel similarly but I, I i'm intrigued by what they're going to do with it anyway do you think they might have a very creative approach to the combat system or something like this so they're gonna it's gonna allow you to like mix and match some more things and also introduce some some cards which do like non non combat skills and things like this. Um, so I mean, it it may not it may not work well, but I'm I'm kind of interested to to see it as an experiment anyway. And apart from Frosthaven, what have you been playing? I played Land and Freedom a couple of times last week. Yeah. We we did our, our episode with the designer, which should be released by the time this comes out. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I'm almost done with the editing. Yep, that was good. And I played again with um, uh, Stephen and Peter, and yeah, that was that was interesting. And yeah, I think it's a really neat game. Um, I think I'll I'll save our discussion of it for the episode because we talk about it a bit then, don't we? Yeah. Uh, so that's fine. What else? I played Hegemony, which you said we had to talk about, um, which you haven't played yet. Which one? Hegemony. Ah, Hegemony. Hegemony. Yes, yes. yes. Lead your class to victory or whatever victory. it's called. Yeah, which yeah. is meant to be this class war- warfare board game. It, so the problem with it is they make these extremely, they being the designers and publishers, have made these grand claims about it being really educational and this kind of thing. And I, I just can't see that at all. It's a, it's a kind of midweight point salad euro game with maybe more interaction than most of these games which is good because i enjoy interaction in my games so you know i i I didn't hate it but it's 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 not you know isn't like a useful interesting model of of class warfare or even of economics i i wouldn't say yeah that's the the feeling that i got from from it uh i would like to to play it because it looks just to be clear i think it looks like a really good game like or an interesting game for like a type of game that normally I don't specifically like. Mm-hmm. Like this one, I was like compelled to try it. I think mm-hmm. the theme is really interesting. And I think the systems and the mechanics that you showed me look really interesting. I like how players or factions are going to interact with each other. I think on that aspect, it looks really exciting. I want to play it. But yeah, as you say, when I think about it as a as a economical, sociopolitical model, I was like, I, I, I don't see it. And when I look at the claim and I look at the game, I'm like, something is wrong here. I don't understand what's, what what happened. Yeah, so yeah, it's a bit confusing. Yeah. What do you think happened, actually? I don't know. So what I mean, what confuses me is they have apparently all these political science consultants on the game. Yeah. And I'm not sure what they're playing at. Um, I can only think that there's a disconnect, and this happens sometimes, a disconnect between the knowledge of the designers and the knowledge of the advisors where the designers know game design and have maybe maybe made a, a good compelling game perhaps and then make all these claims about blah 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 political science and then they bring in these consultants to talk about it with and they say certain things and the consultants are like mm-hmm, yes mm. 
but don't really understand the game. So can't determine whether or not the game actually serves as a good model of these things. That, that, that yeah. would be my initial feeling because I, I just don't see how anybody could endorse it and say it, it, it serves as a good educational model um, in, in a sincere way. And do we know who are those political science consultants that are in the game? I haven't, they I haven't talk about it, but I haven't it seen much. any no. names or... Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know who they are. It was very mysterious. And I don't know... It, like on the Kickstarter, it was really mysterious, but I thought maybe that was the plan and they haven't done it yet. That's why they don't have the names of ever, anyone on there. But now that the game is released, I'm really curious, like, who are those political scientists that uh, looked at the game and said, yeah, that's a good model. I would like to know who they are. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really curious about that. But we don't know, right? I, I don't know. No, I haven't looked into okay. it enough, really. I need to... Maybe maybe Stephen, when he receives his Kickstarter, will we'll know a bit more. Mm-hmm. I, would be, I would be curious to hear his thoughts. Yep. Maybe I should just invite him on the show just to talk about the game. I think that could be really funny. But, uh, but yeah, I, I would like to try it anyway. So if we have the opportunity, I would be... And happy to play Joe, but uh, sure. but yeah, and I don't know if you're listening to this and you would like us to actually uh, record an episode or do a review of Hegemony and and share our thoughts, and I could I think gather some really interesting guests to talk about it. Uh, just let me know. Well, there are no comments on 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 the podcast, but I'm sure you can find a way to reach out on either on Twitter or on anything. So if you're listening to this and want us to do more about Hegemony, just uh, just reach out. Anything else you've played? Uh, that's all I have on my little list. I mean, I play loads of things for work and stuff all the time, but I can't really. Yeah, but those were you are. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. being. I mean, I played Unmatched the other day. You know, that was good. That was always <sighs> good. You played Unmatched without me. Uh, I yeah. feel betrayed. Yeah. Yep. Well, betrayed. I'm going to bring. Um, I've actually just packed up all of Unmatched except for Cobble and Fog into a, one box to bring to the convention. Yeah, uh, yeah, two punch gun. Yep. Do you want me to bring Cobble and Fog? Um, if you want to, you can. I just, I just fitted in what I could, and I probably. Yeah played Cobble and Fog most because I got it first um, although it is very good as well so if you want to bring it that would be fine I think the thing is that I really want to play the Monkey King uh, yeah, from yeah. the from the Legends now that I know really well like the character and everything I really want to play him yeah. I don't think we need to Cobble and Fog we played so much so exactly. I think yeah. it's uh, it's okay cool but I think that's that's it um, I know there is the Golden Geek Awards votes that are open on BGG I don't know if you had a look at them I didn't I, I don't tend to vote on things in general but maybe i should maybe you should well then we won't talk about it maybe we can talk about the results in the next episode Mm -hmm. Uh, in the meantime if you're listening to this and you haven't voted yet note that uh, liz's podcast beyond solitaire is nominated so you should definitely go and vote for this podcast it's the only historical podcast that is uh, featured on the on the Golden Geek Awards. So I think it's really important for us as a community to support. And it's also uh, just an amazing podcast. So go there and vote to support Liz. That would be great. Cool. But I think that's it for our monthly debrief. That was great to be back. And I hope that we'll have a more regular schedule going forward. I'll make my best. Anything else you wanted to say? Last thoughts, Joe? Just for all the true fans out there, our cat Lily is very well and healthy, and will uh, provide a new a new picture of Lily, perhaps with the podcast. Yeah, I will. I will. I will probably add her as a teaser, and I think we need in the next episode a more in-depth update about Lily. I'll, I'll try to okay. get her on live, and we can that see what she has perfect. to say. Yeah, yeah, that okay. would be awesome. Great. Okay. Thanks, Joe. Thanks everyone for listening. And after the music interlude, the second part would be about police. Bye. Bye-bye.
for the second part of the podcast, we will discuss the Club de Jeux Game of the Mounts for April, Police by Devier Games. And actually, I say Police, Deborah, but I'm not sure. So someone corrected me when uh, so a British person, because the way I say it is apparently not the right pronunciation. How would you say it? I would say Police. Police. Okay, I don't hear the difference, but I was corrected. <laughs> but that may, I guess that makes sense. This game has two editions with small changes that we will discuss One was released in 2012, the other one was released in 2020, and it was designed by Fran Diaz, and I believe it's the designer's only published design, which I think is quite surprising, but we also discuss it, I think, during uh, our chat. Tonight, for this collective review, my guests are Deborah, that you've just heard, Ross, and Joe Bayer. Uh, thanks for being here today, to the three of you. Are you excited about participating in this uh, debrief? I'm dizzy. Dizzy, <laughs> dizzy with, with excitement. Absolutely. Fair Yeah, and you, Russ? I'm totally excited. I always like chatting games. Great. And Joe? I am hyped to be here for the first time, yes. Yeah, it's your first time here. And I specified Joe Buyer because there is actually in the Homebody Dance Extended Universe quite a lot of Joes. Uh, so I have to specify which Joe we're talking with. But I'm really happy that uh, you're here for the first time, Joe, and I hope it won't be the, the last time. So as the Club de Jeux founder is not here tonight, uh, I will be the one doing a bit of the explaining around what the Club de Jeux is. It's something that we do every month. Uh, the Homo Lidens Discord server community uh, chooses through a somewhat chaotic, but in the end, pretty democratic process, a game for us to learn and play together uh, during the, uh, the course of the month. And at the end of this month, uh, what we do when I'm not failing as a podcast host is we gather together and do a debrief, record it and share it with the world. This is what we're doing now. And usually we start those collective reviews with a bit of historical context. And usually I, I, I take people by surprise, but I thought it was a bit unfair to, to you because we, we, had a, we had to organize this a bit uh, last minute. And I wasn't sure uh, if I could uh, just uh, drop one of you under the bus. So if that's okay, uh, I think I would provide the historical context unless someone wants to jump in. Go for it. Well, I've got the rule book right in front of me. If you want me to read the preamble, I can do that. Yeah, that's not gonna. <laughs> that's not gonna do it, Joe. That's ah, okay. Good, but then I guess I guess I'm I'm up for it. But basically, the game covers the Peloponnesian War, uh, so something that happened in the fifth century BC, uh, which was. I think around 30-year conflict or something like this uh, between the two major powers of the ancient Greece, uh, Athens and Sparta, so two city-states and their respective allies. So this war was extensively chronicled by the uh, historian Thucydides in his work History of the Peloponnesian War. And actually, this is uh, one of the foundational military history uh, book of the Western civilization. So something that is quite interesting to have a look at. It is uh, generally divided into three phases. So you have the uh, Academian War uh, for the first 10 years of the war. So between 431 and 421 BC. Then you've got the Peace of Nicias uh, between 421 and 413 BC. And finally, you have the, the third act of the war, which is the Decelian War or Ionian War. It depends. Uh, it can be named both. So between between 413 and 404. So maybe just a bit of context about those three phases of the conflict. So the Academian War was the first phase of the Peloponnesian War. That's all uh, Sparta and its allies invading Attica, so the region surrounding Athens, uh, with the goal of disrupting uh, Athenian agriculture and provoking a land battle 
which is actually something really interesting when you play the game because you actually see those dynamics in play. Uh, someone coming into the field to uh, disrupt resource collection and hope to trigger a fight. However, Athens, under the leadership of Pericles, adopted a defensive strategy that was heavily relying on its navy to maintain supply lines and raiding the Peloponnese uh, coast. So this phase was characterized by uh, annual Spartan invasions of Attica, trying to disrupt the agriculture, having small skirmishes, and it resulted uh, with the Battle of uh, Sphacteria in uh, 425 BCE, uh, which led to actually peace negotiation with the Spartans and you could say a victory of the Athenians for this first phase. Then you've got the Peace of Nicias. So this period began, began with the, the signing of the peace treaty that was obviously not respected. So it was a very fragile peace uh, with a lot of tension during the, the whole period. And that actually uh, led to, um, to different uh, expeditions and attacks. And the most important one was the um, Athenian Empire's attempt at uh, taking control of Sicily. Uh, which is also something that you can try to do in the game and you can also dramatically fail and it can be really crippling as Athens. So that's that's really interesting. The final stage of the war is the Sicilian War uh, or Ionian War. And this is the, the final phase of the war that saw Sparta with financial support from the Persian Empire, which I don't think you really see in the game or maybe you do through the training, I'm not sure, uh, launching an aggressive offensive against Athens. And the Spartans actually established a permanent garrison in uh, the Cilea, uh in Attica, completely disrupting the uh, Athenian agriculture, but also trade, which was uh, really important for Athens to uh, sustain itself. There were some revolts against uh, within the Athenian allies, and actually it led to uh, an Athenian defeat. And you could say that uh, the Peloponnesian War ends with the victory of Sparta. If we look at... The consequences of the Peloponnesian War, it had a few long-term consequences in ancient Greece. Overall, uh, this 30 years of war led to the decline of the Athenian Empire, but also significantly weakening its political, economic, and military power. It was the end of the Athenian Golden Age, definitely. And even if Sparta emerged as the dominant power in Greece, it faced its own problem. It struggled to maintain control over the territories that it gained during the war. And it was a, it was a victory that led, you could say, to, to nothing. So ultimately, it weakened the Greek city-states, making them more vulnerable to external threats uh, in the long run. And it actually contributed to the rise of Macedonia uh, under Philip II and later his son, Alexander the Great. So I think that should give a broad overview. Uh, there are some cultural and economical aspects that maybe I will mention while we talk, but I think this should be enough to give a bit of context. I'm not sure. What do you think? Sounds good to me. I learned stuff. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> but yeah. So I had to improvise something. Just to be clear, I'm not a historian. I had to gather a few stuff here and there. So there are a few stuff in the rule book, but it's pretty pretty limited. And I had to read a bit about um, the Peloponnesian War. And actually, I would say that after doing that, it made me appreciate the design even more. So that's um, that's quite interesting. Uh, but before talking starting to talk about the game, usually what I like to ask uh, the guests is how many times they've played, how did they play, did they play face-to-face, did they play digitally, and what were those different experiences like? Uh, and also in that specific case, I will ask which edition you've played. And we can maybe start with you, Deborah. Um, I played half a dozen times, and I think I played about three times online, first edition, and three times in person, second edition which I have, and it's very nice. And I was really glad of this excuse to force people that I know in person to play it with me. Yeah, that's <laughs> because actually... Because normally they're reluctant. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and so those people that you force to play, are they usually war gamers? No, 
That's the whole okay. point. Normally, they yeah, are. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then I will have a lot of questions about that because I have a whole part of the discussion that is around, is it a Euro game or a war game? And I think hearing from you and the feedbacks that you got from the first player would be super interesting to um, to see what people outside of our hobby are perceiving the game for. Did you have any preference between the two editions? I do like the second edition just because I. it's so beautiful. The production is lovely. And also... Um, I do like the change to the siege rule so that you do have a bit more of a yeah. chance to get it right <laughs> eventually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, eventually. <laughs> eventually. Sometimes <laughs> it still goes wrong, but yeah, eventually you yeah. end up getting that 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 yeah. siege. Yeah, that's interesting. And and you Russ? So I have played twice. Uh first time was in person. Uh second edition. A friend of mine owns a copy and has been talking for a good month or two um, about playing. So it was it was very fortunate that uh, this was the, the, the game of the month. And then finishing up my second play of, of uh, first edition on online right Yeah, now. on BGA with me. That's the game we're doing yep. together, right? Yep, yep. Okay. And did you feel like there was a big difference between the two editions? Uh, I wouldn't say there's a big edition. Uh, I do think... Uh, the second edition, it, it definitely, I would agree with Deborah that it looks fantastic um, when you sit it out on the on the table. So I was lucky. We, we played our game at uh, Buckeye Game Fest uh, last week, and there were a lot of people, um, a, lo- a lot of uh, you, know, you know, big hex encounter war gamers that were coming by and like, ooh, you know, like uh, you, it, the thing just attracts anyone who walks by is going to stop and, and ask some mm. questions about it for sure. Uh, not only does it look better, there's some wonkiness on the the user interface on on BGA, but I think that which <laughs> is kind of comical. The game is hard. Yeah. Yeah, it makes it a bit less painful. Uh, interesting. That's probably something we'd go back to because I think the unforgiving aspect of the game is one of its core features. So I would be also curious to get all of your thoughts on that. And finally, Yujo. So how many times did you manage to play and which editions? I managed to play, well, five times, I'd say, total. Once I laid it out, I have the new edition. I managed to get a copy of that. I laid it out, kind of tried to solo it a little bit to get the hang of it before diving in. But I managed to play with that copy twice with a friend. Um, just twice in one night, uh, oddly, it was kind of weird the way the first one went down and ended pretty quickly, but then, uh, a couple times then on BGA. So twice with you, Fred, uh, we exchanged victories there and once with someone else that was just trying it for the first time and it didn't fare very well. I owe them a yeah. rematch, I think, <laughs> because, um, it didn't quite go down. I think they were still trying to figure out the rules. Um, but it was great being able to try both editions. There was actually both editions were up for sale in the resale market here secondhand locally. And I saw, well, there's the old one for like 20 bucks or something like that. But the new one was like unpunched and everything. So I just went and I grabbed that one and figured, okay, I can play the old one online just to compare and contrast that way. But uh, glad I did. It's uh, really beautiful on the table. It's the other folks said. And maybe to follow up on this. So you said that you've played both editions. What? How did you feel about the differences between the two? Yeah, they're, they're fairly minor, right? I think... The first one, well, I miss the olives. <laughs> the olives being yeah. the element, the resource in the first one. It's kind of that's one other like perishable food item that can disintegrate on you. So that's just one other element, uh, kind of extra layer of complexity in the economy. Um, the siege thing, I totally agree. Like that, when you make a siege, 
and you fail, you get to put down a siege marker, so you get a plus one the next time because it's just a d6 die roll. So uh, d4. You need a, d4. d4, sorry, not yes. even d6, d4 die roll when you got to get some of these are worth four. So you really got to do it right. I I like. I like the old one for the f- four rounds versus the three. Um, yeah. Three rounds felt very short, I thought. Interesting. Really interesting because I yeah, think that's a, a point of uh, maybe of conflict. We'll go back to that. So <laughs> okay. just on, on my side, just to, to wrap up the, um, the this part of the, of the chat. So I think I managed to play it around 10 times. So I played it quite a lot. And it was the first time that I played it when we started Look Up the Jeu because I completely fell in love. So you're already a bit of spoiler for, for my review at the end of the discussion. The first time was with uh, Deborah on BGA, and I haven't read the rules before. I was just I just came through and I didn't really understand uh, how the game works, so I was basically just clicking on buttons, and I got completely obliterated by Deborah. Uh, actually, contrary to history, uh, Athens in that game took easily control of Sicily, uh, generated a lot of grains, and Sparta was just collapsing on itself uh, for I think two eras or three. I think it. I ended up by um, just killing myself um, in a way I couldn't even sustain my population which was pretty sad um then like you joe i played a bit solo uh, just to wrap my head around not a full game but just a, a couple of uh, rounds just to really understand the system after that and then after that i managed to play both on bga the first edition and face to face the second edition and i agree the second edition is beautiful i think it makes some significant improvements in streamlining the game uh, making it also very attractive I would say there is one thing though, and maybe I would like maybe a, an edition 1.5 that gets some of the aspect, aspect of edition two, like the siege rule that you mentioned, maybe having less resources, types of resources uh, is also fine, even if I do like the olives, but I think that's okay. But I like the compact aspect of the first edition. It's a way smaller package. And I think when you live in Europe, it's also more attractive. It also makes the game more easy to transport and, and, and share with a, with a wider audience. But that being said, I think the two editions are really great. But regarding these differences between the number of rounds, that's actually an interesting point. So the edition two only plays for three rounds. The edition one was playing for four. And I was wondering, uh, and maybe starting with you, Deborah, how do you think this impacts the tempo of the overall game? Well, the first time I played on BGA, I was horrified because I'd all aimed for three rounds. And then suddenly there was this other one and I was caught completely by surprise and lost horribly. I think having got used to it a bit now, I can see that it's just actually what you're used to. And I I don't mind either way, but I honestly can't see the, the point of the third round, the fourth round. It's, mm. you know, so making it shorter is makes it easier for me to get other people to play it. So yeah. I still prefer the three rounder, I think. And I do agree. I'm not sure the fourth round is that useful. Uh, I think that's a really good point. Unless you have a very tight game and you feel like you can do something in a in a subsequent round, but what did you think, Joe? Because apparently you preferred the fact that there was four rounds instead of three. I maybe I felt that you could just get a bit more going with it and just really take advantage of every possibility of what you can do in that fourth round if you've got enough prestige going into that. So, um, and, and just for reference, like the, the game is basically tempoed based on how much prestige you have. And as your prestige runs down, then you end up passing if you want and then hand it over to the next person. They have to pay for each move. But then 
that prestige you can build back up as you go to the cleanup phase. So with that in mind, um, something about when I played in person with the shorter game, um, it felt like it went really fast and we didn't get quite as much going. And there was a lot of pullets left still on the, the, the table there for us to grab up that we didn't get around to because we ran out of prestige. That mm. said, the other player didn't want to do any battles. So we didn't have any battles at all. They were treating it like a Euro. So we weren't ramping up the prestige or trading back and forth that way. So um, that one, it did feel more like an economic game when we played that way. But I will say, yeah, I, I just feel like you can really get a lot going. You've got two rounds then at the end, based on the amount of stacking limits, the amount of pieces you can have out there, there's a much higher chance that you're going to have a battle. So if you're up for that, and I think the battle mechanic is pretty cool. If you're up for that, then there's uh, just that much more room to to fight basically yeah um i guess yeah those are probably the main reasons that i can think of and oh i will say though that okay for the older version being on bga then it being longer is much more conducive to async play yeah i can understand doing that long of a game on the table could probably drain uh, uh drag you out a little bit yeah i think that's a really good point i think having an extra round on bga is not that problematic because the game runs way faster anyway you can play async so it doesn't take as much of your time and table space so i think that's a really good uh, observation that that's yeah that's really interesting and and for you russ how did you feel about this change of tempo between the games well i haven't we haven't got to the the end of our uh, oh yeah right our, I haven't finished so I you off yet <laughs> have it but uh, I'll say the first one with only three rounds the second edition that I played live uh, I think that third round didn't last more than fifteen minutes because uh, we we were in a, a game that had no battles and neither of us managed our economy very well and so I think I ended up passing. Uh, maybe on the middle of my second turn. And I think my opponent maybe paid for a handful of actions after that. And then we went into the end game. So it was a, it was a very quick third round. So I, I'm, I'll admit this is not the style of game that I play a lot of with, with resource management to this level for me, an extra round of that is not something that I necessarily, am craving i guess i'll put it that way yeah okay but that's really uh, interesting and i think that the state of the conversation that we are at we're going to start talking about the system itself you were mentioning about having fights not having fights managing resources and everything i think before talking about this maybe we need a bit of more context about how the game works and now i'm going to throw one of you under the bus to give a brief overview of the game system and i'm going to ask deborah are you up for it well i'll try but <laughs> Yes, okay. <laughs> I will jump in if needed, yeah. Thank you very much. Well, you have the games as with basically, you have a lot of resources, but only two of them really matter, and they are, unless you're Athens, they are prestige and food. And if you are Athens, you have to trade to get food, and if you're Sparta, you can grow your own, and then either country, in theory, can get hold of Sicily, which has a lot more. But in order to take any action that might get you Sicily or anything useful, you have to use your prestige. And you start out with some pathetically small amount, like three prestige. And yeah. every time you so much as move a troop, you use a prestige. And then to attack, you use a prestige. That's two prestiges gone. And if at any time you end around with no prestige, you instantly lose the game. In order to get prestige, you have to do things like conquer your neighbours, which 
for reasons I've just given, is extremely difficult when you only have three prestige. So it's an incredibly tight game and you have to be very organised about what you're doing. Uh, is there anything else I should say? Oh, yes, battles. <laughs> yeah, I would say two things, battles and projects we need to talk yes. about. One great source of prestige, if you can afford them, are projects. But where you can have a project is limited and it's a bit of a random choice of which projects will be available. And if you can't get projects in your city, you may be a little bit stuck. The other great source of battle, of prestige, is battle. And there the Athenians have an advantage in naval battles and the Spartans have an advantage in land battles. But nobody can battle in the first round, in the first era, that is to say, of the three eras of the game, anyway, because you can't get enough troops into one territory to fight. So you're really building up in the first, rather as Fred explained you, the war happened, you, you're ramping up in the first one to get ready for battles to come in the second and third eras. Yeah, and that's really an interesting aspect because each round has a stacking limit and fights only trigger once you have eight or more blocks of both faction in a single space. The first round has a stacking limit of three perfections, so six is below eight, so even at max it would not trigger a battle. And then the second round is four, and that would mean the two factions heavily committing in one space to actually trigger a battle. So even in, I would say, round four, battles are rare. And finally, in the final round or final rounds, depending on which version you're playing, you up, go up to five. And this is where I think you have a bit more battles, sometimes more interesting battles, because you can potentially surprise your opponent on a 5-2-3 or something like this, which is quite interesting. But yeah, as you say, the, the battles are not coming up uh, necessarily very frequently. But when they do, a pretty interesting source of prestige, definitely. Uh, so that's that's quite interesting. And yeah, and you said that the two main resources are wheat to feed your population and prestige. And what is important is that at the end of the game to win, you count the number of prestige that you have. And then the rest of your victory points, you could say, is the population under your political control. So you have those tiles with the police that you control and small cubes that indicate the population that are in there and you sum everything together. So you do need the prestige to win the game and take action. So it's a bit of weird. It's something really hard to wrap your head around that your main resource is also your victory points that you have to spend to make more victory points in the future. But also you're trying to maintain a healthy population to actually uh, uh, win against your, your opponent. But I think that gives a, a broad overview. I really like the battle system, but maybe we'll talk about this more specifically uh, afterwards. The th first thing that I would like to ask you is, how did you feel generally about that very weird system? Because when I played it, I thought it was not really a war game, but maybe it was, and I was a bit confused. In a lot of aspects, I was thinking that I was doing a bit of maybe more dynamic worker placement, something like this, or or very aggressive worker placement. Uh, I'm a bit unsure on how to call it. And I was trying to figure out what I thought the game was. And I came out with this idea that it is a war game for Eurogamer and not the <laughs> other way around. It's not a Eurogame for war gamers. I think it's really the opposite. It is a war game for Eurogamer because fights are not necessary. You fight for very specific needs, but at its core, it's really just building an engine of generating resources to get specific victory points. But I was wondering, what's your perspective on this? What kind of game is it? And maybe we can start with you, um, Russ. Uh, I would agree 100% with that assessment. 
I, I classify myself probably more war gaming uh, as kind of my favorite style than than non war gaming. I don't do a lot of euros except for you know with my circle of friends if they bust something out on the table because I'm I'm not the kind of person that typically will uh, veto a game uh, that comes out unless it's very rare. But we again we we went through an entire game with not a single battle. Uh, there was minimal conflict. It was get this resource to go get, you know, build more troops, to have more troops, to move them into more spaces, to collect more other resources so you can feed more population and build more population to get more prestige. <laughs> so it, it was a, a lot of that that kind of that resource bid, bidding. And, you know, in terms of conflict, I think my gaming partner who who introduced me to the game and owned it said it best. Your biggest enemy in that game is yourself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you mess up or uh, don't pay attention to a particular resource and run out, you can get really stuck really fast. And, and it's very easy to do that without the other player's influence at all. Again, our game was pretty much like we were almost to a degree playing uh you know two game solitaire other than you know if he if someone grabs a a location and and is able to to collect resources that might block it off from somebody else but for the most part we were able to complete a whole game with with very minimal interaction that's really interesting because actually i wouldn't say that it's a viable strategy to have very minimal interactions you have to fight to win the game so that's yeah that's really interesting. And regarding the thing that you were saying about you're your you're your own worst enemy in the game, which I think is really true. And it it, it reminds me of the Splatter Spellen game. Like it gave me sometimes the feel for antiquity or stuff like this, where where yes, it is a competitive game, but in a lot of ways you are competing against your own failures. Uh, and that's the, the main issue that you are struggling through. Once again, confirming the aspect that it is. Like it reminded me more of, of of Euro games, you could say, or, or weird Euro games. And and you, Joe, what did you think about this? Well, as someone that came up more through Euro gamers first before finding war games are very like historically modeled games, at least anyway. Yeah, I could see the balance of both. It starts off like a Euro game resource collection, and then it, like you said, Fred, is you can add more and more pieces on there, better chance of getting battles or or triggering battles at least. So it's it's a Euro game until it isn't until you want it to be a war game. And well, you and I know, cause we slapped each other around quite a bit in our games. Yeah. I think we had <laughs> quite a few uh, heady battles back and forth, but, um, the, but again, like I said, the, the ones that I played uh, live, it, it didn't result in any battles. Uh, maybe it was just due to the, the timing overall or just the, the other player's mood, but again, it doesn't have to be a war game if you don't want it to be, but you still, I think it has more of that Euro game getting in each other's way and even more aggressive, almost like you can block each other's routes. You know, you can choke out a, a, a C route so that someone can't even go and trade, which, well, by the way, speaking of trade, though, that was the very Eurogaming aspect, just the whole fluctuating market. We haven't even talked about that yet, but that one takes a little while to wrap your brain around. But it's like you could have the best laid plans when someone goes and trades that resource that you were going to trade and it drops the value of it and you're not going to get nearly as much and you've got to trade a lot more for it. So that was the other, it's that kind of in your face Euro kind of aspect for sure so it's a really neat balance but i do i do agree it's it's a war i think you said it was a war game for euro gamers rather than the other way around yeah yeah for sure 
And it's interesting that you talk about trade because I think it's one of the aspects that I find also the most fascinating. I, I really like this idea that one of the players trading one kind of resources is actually going to make the value of that resource lower because they flooded the market with it, which makes actually kind of sense historically. That's always a tension when you have a re like resources that generate income for a region and there are a competition about when and where you're going to sell and which price and you're basically fighting over the control of those resources not necessarily for yourself but for the potential of trading them with others and you do end up making like blocking uh, trade routes and everything and in a way for me it feels almost like very much like a geopolitical game uh, in that that aspect and that's maybe one of the things that I like between the two versions I think the the market is a bit less volatile with edition two, uh, which is probably for the best. And that's for like just basic statistics reason. But uh, in edition one, as soon as you trade, you roll one D4 and that's going to be the impact on the, on the market shares. Uh, whereas on edition two, you roll two and you take only the lower value. So overall you have a bit less fluctuation, but I think that's, um, that's a minor thing, but I think it makes the game a bit less fiddly. And also with this, the silver too, sorry, just say the silver that you can get, you can then spend it to bring the value back down again. So you got to time that just right silver yes. can be used in a bunch of different ways so there's this other layer of there's currency on top of the goods and the foods and stuff and then yeah you can bring it back down just at the right time but you've got to have the right amount of silver it's it's pretty tricky to ride that wave yeah there is a lot of things to, to consider definitely and, and you deborah what would you say euro game war game something in between what are your thoughts i think honestly i put it exactly the opposite way from you fred because it seems to me that the trade and things like that, they're sort of Euro mechanisms and they're popped in there and we get war gamers to play it because the people who want to play polis, I'd have thought, are people who want really cutthroat, tight, aggressive games and where you are constantly vulnerable to attack. And that is, you know, with lots of mobility, the mobility, I wish I'd mentioned this in the mechanisms because the mobility scheme in polis where you can move your little cubes from all over the board into one area makes, means that you are so vulnerable to attack at any point if you just overlook one tiny little thing. That is surely what wargaming is about, you know. Whereas, you know, Euros I tend to associate with, and I am a Euro gamer, please don't anyone take this bitterly the wrong way, but, you know, Building up your little empire privately while other people let you get on with it. That is not what Polis is about at all. Yeah, it's definitely not private. <laughs> that's for <laughs> sure. You're really in each other's faces. Uh, that's, a, that's a really interesting point. But beyond that, maybe continuing with you, Deborah, what did you think about um, how the history was portrayed in, in, in this game? Because we say it's very Euro-y and we are part of a, a community in the hobby that is more interested in the historical aspect of the games and sometimes see that the historical model first is more important than than the game's mechanics. How did you feel about the way Polis depicted the Peloponnesian War? This is not my area of expertise at all, and I found your introduction to the context interesting because I hadn't realized how generally accepted a tripartite division is, for example. I'm not sure it's generally accepted. That's just ah, like a division right. that I, that I, so I don't know what's ah. the modern uh, scholarship on it. So, right. so please don't take my, my words for okay. uh, as, as, as something that is historiographically accurate. It is well, totally uh, what, possible. Yeah. Right. What I did wonder about was the whole issue of prestige being so important. Was it really? I mean, you have to, it almost sounds as though I mean, both Sparta and Athens were democracies having to impress their people and feed them, or otherwise they would be toppled, which surely 
is not how things were, at least in Sparta. So mm. I had doubts about some of the historical um, suggestions. But other things, such as the, the crops in different parts of Greece and the vital importance of Sicily and so on, really did help a lot with, with my understanding of the battles. And it was, it was great. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you're raising regarding the victory conditions, which for me makes it really fall in the Euro category in the sense that, as you say, I don't really understand what point the game is trying to make, or at least not in the case of Sparta. I think in the case of Athens, it does kind of make sense because they were trying to be like this hegemonic uh, force in Greece and having most of your victory points are going to come from population. Then a big bunch of your victory points are going to come through the projects that you've developed. So how much your culture is going to radiate around all of Greece. And then some of it is the, the prestige that you have at the end from the battles and stuff like that. But when you think about this, that does make sense. But is it, isn't it a bit weird that they have those symmetric victory conditions? I'm not really sure. So I think that's a really good point. But then regarding the geographical aspect or what you're actually doing within the game, I thought it made a lot of sense. Just that maybe the, the overall point of the game and, and the way you win is a bit, maybe a bit off. What did you what did you think about that, Russ? Yeah, I mean, I, I I do like the different resources in the different regions. It definitely incentivizes you uh, to go. You know, you want to go get Sicily. That's where all the food is, and food is one of the primary resources that you need to keep that population, which also is victory points. Um, so it's it's definitely going to push you to, you know, either build up your money quite a bit. In fact, the, the guy I was playing with told me that uh, he played a game online where I, I think in the first, and I don't know how he did it, but somehow in the in the first, uh, first turn, he was playing a guy that immediately built up his silver just so he could go over and, and get Syracuse like early in the first round and then just start mining all the, all the food. And, and it was just, he got crushed because the, the guy was able to get that going so quick. So I think that's very interesting of, of feeding armies. I think also it's an interesting dynamic of, it makes sense when you take regions that you would get prestige. And then it's, it's very interesting that as you then kind of bring those, those new city states um, areas and say, Hey, it's time for you guys to donate to the cause that that then brings your uh, your prestige back down. So everyone's happy that you got you know brought these these new places into the fold into your alliance. But when it's time for them to pay their taxes, I guess that's just like this is like just like us today. No one wants to pay the taxes. <laughs> They're all happy when things are going well, but when it's time to uh, uh, to pay for that progress uh, is when when you start getting some discontent. Yeah, no one ever does, Russ. No one ever does. And you, Joe, what did you think about the the history in the game overall? Well, like uh, Deborah said, like I learned a lot just from your preamble. As it is, like uh, the Peloponnesian War is just something that's kind of been on the periphery for me. Like I really like learning about ancients and stuff, but I've you know, watched so many documentaries, and a lot of them honestly start to blend together. So it's not something that I'm very well steeped in. I think that might be part of the why this is kind of this overlap of is it Euro? Is it a war game? Is because Sometimes like games set in the past this far back are very kind of thematic focused. 
as opposed to heavily modeled, like just because we don't have as much data on exactly what went down at the time. I think Peloponnesian War, I think there's a lot of surviving history from that. Yeah. Um, but even that needs to be deciphered and really, you know, taken with a grain of salt to the sources that we have. So I think that might be part of the attraction. It's just like, okay, this is so far away and we can kind of guess, we can kind of imagine uh, how some of this went down as opposed to like a 20th century conflict where we have a lot more data and we can model it to a T. So um, I think just the geography alone, like seeing so this is what's different from a Euro game. If this were a Euro game, truly, it would have distorted the map so it's easier to fit cubes in all the spaces. But yeah. it's very topographical. It's not doing looking. that. Yeah, It's not doing that at all. It's showing you Greece as it is. It's showing all the regions and stuff. So I think there's a lot to learn here. Like, I thought this would be a good stepping stone to eventually get to Pericles from GMT to maybe learn even deeper about the Peloponnesian War. But this was just a fun one to kind of whet the appetite. I think some of the stuff that I learned from from playing is, is like the other folks said you know the importance of sicily the importance of certain geographic regions and the timing of certain things that like you mentioned the um in the preamble fred i think you talked about in persia um where there was more conflicts or something going on there it's like i, I don't know if that's meant to be but like iona is the one that's you know in what is modern day turkey it's the one region that you kind of forget about until the last round and go oh right there's this polis over there sitting there worth two or three that i might be able to go siege because they left that sea open like just some of the way some of the gameplay is maybe a little bit on rails or even that opening move i think we talked about this in the discord to go is it is it just me or is it the first sparta move always just to go right up to macedonia with your uh your progenesis whatever and pay the money and take over one of those uh polices right away so that you're not cut off from the uh from moving up and down the mainland i thought that's kind of interesting a lot of people seem to make that their first move so um but uh yeah i mean it's it gives it whets the appetite just enough i think to learn more about the history yeah and i think it's a really good point about this giving you a good sense of the geography of the conflict and i think it also gives you a good sense of why were the different regions important and it also in the model shows how different Sparta and Athens were and how heavily uh, focused on trade uh, Athens needs to be to actually succeed in uh, maintaining its uh, economy. So uh, I think that's that's actually quite uh, quite interesting in, in that regard. Probably not the, the most advanced model of history I've seen, but I learned quite a bit. When I read about the history, I could see some hints in the game and I was like, oh, that's actually pretty smart. It does depict things in a really interesting way. I didn't take it really as as something that was really trying to make a strong historical point, but it, I don't know, I thought it actually showed some pretty decent history and I thought it was a an interesting game in that regard. And, and for me, it puts it outside of the, the realm of Euro, or at least it's a Euro that takes the history that it's depicting pretty seriously, which is quite interesting. That being said, we are at the 40 minute marks. Should we jump in into the short reviews or is there another aspect that one of you want to talk about before we do that? Ah, let's review. <laughs> it's okay, so that I would take that as a no. Let's review, Joe. You are, seem pretty excited, <laughs> then I guess you should start. Okay, well, first off to clarify, I don't really do classical reviews or anything, and I know it's, it, you got to take it with a grain of salt. You know, I like to kind of reference what do people people that like gaming another game what type of games would they like that they'd like this type thing this one is well first off i liked it i had a great time with it i had a great time with both versions it uh, like you've read it kind of scratched that itch for some cool historical stuff while just being a fun uh, engaging model so you know, it kind of reminded me of <laughs> in some ways of scythe 
I guess I'll say. In that oh, it's, interesting. It's, yeah. it's, it's a resource collection game yeah. until you don't want it to be, until you want to go fight, until you want to pick a fight with someone. So people that maybe think Slice is a little over the top or maybe want something a bit more historically focused uh, might want to look at this uh, as a starting point. But uh, yeah, as, as far as a rating system, I'll come with one right now. I botched the name earlier. It's the Proxenos. The Proxenos is the uh, little character you can move around and buy out the Polish with. I will give this four out of five Proxenos. That's a pretty cool rating. Thanks. Russ, what is your review? I think if I had to sum up a review, I would say this is uh, a game for people who like a lot of thinky, kind of puzzly, brain burner type games, but that also you know, have an ability to really go into a lot of chaos with uh, confrontation and um, you, you can really do some get that with cutting people off I think was mentioned is, is a good thing or, or with uh, strategic battles or you know taking someone's proxenos and making them pay you silver to to get them out or uh, is, is not not fun either um, if that happens in your game especially when you're low on on resources. Um, it's definitely, I would caution people that if if you don't like super punishing games where one mistake can pretty much cost you a, a game or be very, very difficult to get out of, uh, this may not be a game that you might want to look at because uh, it's definitely one that if you get backed against the corner and your opponent knows what they're doing, uh, you might watch out. It also has a little bit of that Twilight Struggle if you're playing someone who's played it a lot and it's your first time, don't be surprised if you get wrecked pretty early because um, it is not one that you're just going to pick, sit down and be like, oh yeah, I see exactly what I got to do. Uh, I think you're going to really that have a pretty punishing first first go of it for sure. Yeah, it, that's really true. <laughs> like, I think that the, the difference in skills between someone who's just played maybe four or five games and someone who's playing their first game is... It's brutal. But then I think the learning curve is not that steep, uh, contrary to, to Twilight Struggle. But I, uh, that's a really good point. So what's your rating? Uh, I think if I had to give a rating, I will go with uh, 7 out of 10 bushels of wheat. <laughs> Fair enough. Deborah, what's your review? Well, I think it's an utterly fantastic game, but only if you like that sort of thing. There is a very niche thing. It's for people who like really aggressive games. I would say I don't understand people who can play this without, without attacking and just do the resource conversion because surely you run out of prestige, but there we are. Obviously, I'm, I'm lacking something in my strategy, but I always have to attack. And it's the fun of the game is that it is so unforgiving. You will get it wrong half the time and fail dismally. But at the same time, you can pull off glorious victories against your humiliated opponent so it yes <laughs> it is absolutely the tensest game that i know and that's what i like about it but it's also partly what makes it difficult to get to the table because most a lot of people don't like that would like a little bit more forgiving and so on and so i've i've really struggled to get anyone to play this with me in person um i'm also going to dock it slightly because it has a gender exclusive rule book and because you are right, the board should really be a bit smaller, even though it's lovely as it is. So 
With those flaws, I'm still going to give it nine out of ten because I, I just think it's brilliant. So even with the the two big board, the the board that's too big and the gender exclusive uh, rule book, it's still got a nine out of ten. Yeah, that's yeah. I didn't notice the gender exclusive rule book. I, I I didn't pay attention to that, which says a lot about the fact that. When you were a man, you don't really pay attention to that necessarily. <laughs> I noticed it. I noticed it in the first one. I had hoped they they changed it in the second one. By the time I picked it up, and like, oh no, there it is. Good call. Okay. Out uh, yeah, that's that's. I mean, come on. The game. This one was released in 2020. I mean, uh, the 2012 version. I would understand, but in 2020, that's just yeah. I think the maybe the the, the Spanish part of the hobby needs to uh, to step up a bit, but uh, but that's fine. Maybe for edition three with three, we'll see. Um, my review, I would keep it very fast. For me, I think it's a wonderful game. Like I have, don't have much more to say than what Deborah said. Actually, I really like the fact that the game changes over its course. Like there is a really interesting narrative between the three rounds or the four rounds, depending on which edition you're you're playing. I really like the idea of having a game where you fight for a very specific purpose, and it's not really land based. Like it's almost a political reason for which you fight which i think is really interesting and not a lot of games uh, do really well i really like the small touches that it brings around the history which i think is really well made for a game of that type it is really aggressive it's not for everyone it is unforgiving which i think is pretty awesome but of course it's it makes it hard to to, to play with a, a wider audience who really need to to make sure that you if you want to introduce someone to this game to make sure that this person is in that that kind of mindset the production is beautiful. The system is completely unique. I've never played anything like that. I really liked your parallel with Site Joe. I do see some of it, and that's really interesting. Uh, and for me, the few drawbacks that I would say is that, yeah, I think the Edition 2 is too big. It does a weird thing about where it places the value of the resources that you're collecting, which I think is a bit weird um, overall. And then there is one thing that I don't like about the game that we haven't talked about, is that at the beginning of each round, you have an event and you draw an event card, and some of these event cards are no event event cards, which I think is super lazy. I'm like, well, that's yeah. I, I was a bit disappointed by that, but I, don't I know was what... just gonna say that the events we didn't even talk about them. I wish they were they came up more often too. Yeah, exactly. Like if there events... was a midway point or something where you draw another one. Yeah, just yeah, the, that, a bit more in Chrome. That's all. Exactly, and events don't need to be like game changing or anything. But I think they always add a bit of spice. Like it's like, oh, all of a sudden Sparta has two hoplites in Ionia, and I'm like, mm, now I have to deal with that shit. And I don't know, yeah. it makes things a bit interesting. And they were very balanced. And I'm thinking, why would you have a no event card? That's boring. But. <laughs> That being I just considered, take them out. I take them out. I don't even use them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But anyway, I would say I would give it at least eight prestige, and I would say if they come up with a third edition that is a bit more compact overall, so that gets all of the good stuff from edition two, and makes it a bit more compact like edition one was, I would definitely put it at nine prestige. But I would definitely recommend this game if you're interested in that history. If you're looking for things that are a bit hybrids between war games and euros, and you want really mean games, I think you should definitely go for that. I think it's an amazing, amazing game and a revelation for me. I had it on my shelf of shame for so long. I was super excited that we could play it for the Club de Jeu, and I really don't regret it. So yeah, that was great. One thing to say to our listeners, because we're reaching the end of the podcast, is if you were excited by this idea of Le Club de Jeu, playing with people from all around the world, learning the rules together and playing together, well, the best way to do that is to join the Homo Dance Discord server. And to join the Homo Dance Discord server, you just have to donate on Coffee to support the show. 
that would be it for this month. I would like to thank the three of you for taking part in that collective review. It was a super interesting chat. See you next month to everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks, Red. Thanks. 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 Yeah, yeah.